Welcome to Elmo's Road Podcast. This is Elmo Elder Jr. And again, we have Jonathan Baker. Uh, Jonathan, can you uh, 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 repeat uh, your specialization on the topic of uh, w- where you are, uh, you have your doctorate? Yes, I, I mean, my doctorate's in geology. I'm a master's and doctorate in geology, and I'm a postdoctoral researcher in paleoclimatology. So again, we study ancient climate change to uh, you know, learn about how the climate system works and uh, our impact on it and what that means for our future. Okay, so um, t- there is a growing uh, Christian uh, community where young earth creationists have been the mainstream uh, belief in terms of how they understand the world scientifically. So I, I assume that being someone of your scientific caliber, you would greatly disagree with this community. I certainly agree with the science, well, the scientific approaches that they take and the conclusions they make. Um, absolutely, uh, I've 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 been in you know closely followed their publications, their thinking, and and the outreach throughout the years, but at least since the mid '90s. So it's they've gone through a transformation as well. Uh, it's uh, it's it's a very modern movement, I think. I mean, they they will perceive themselves and paint themselves as like the keepers of orthodoxy, but uh, it's it's really not the case. Um, for most of church history, you know, when we discovered new things about the universe, that uh, whether the structure of the cosmos, the structure of our solar system, the you know the Earth itself, uh, or even the history of the Earth, you know, when we discovered that um, you know through geology that in, even beginning in the 17th century, uh, discovered that these processes take a lot longer than a few thousand years, and uh, the Earth is very old, and, and there's a lot to Earth history that doesn't involve humans even. So, you know, as we discovered that, uh, most churches just said, okay, well, you know, we learned something new, let's let's go with it, and let's keep studying. Um, you know, of course, there are, there are points of conflict, especially when we discover more about the uh, the origins of human, of the human species, uh, that at least challenged um, some beliefs. You know, that people thought about the, you know, they struggled to define then what is our divine origin. I mean, we believe that humans had something of a divine origin, and then the story of uh, the creation of mankind. So that, that challenged um, ideas about well, what does that mean for our place in the world and uh, are we less? I mean, is is that connection with God broken? Is it less less divine in some way? Uh, and what does that imply for how we read our scriptural traditions? You know, whether it's a, a Christian, Jewish faith, or Islam. You know, that's uh, so. So yeah, they've struggled with that through time, but you don't see the kind of reactionary uh, counterpositions until the 20th century. Um, I mean, uh, obviously with human evolution, there was a lot of resistance in the 19th century, but for the most part, people said, okay, well, I guess that's how it is. Let's just rethink the world and, and say, what does that mean for, for who we are and how we should live? But uh, in the 1930s, about, uh, it took a different path because it wasn't just, I mean, before people said, well, that kind of challenges my belief. I may accept it or I may not. Um, but in the 1930s, it, it sort of began a new movement to say, well, it's we're not just going to say this challenges my belief system, so I won't accept it, but we're going to, you know, use science to, to test whether the biblical history is actually correct, and 
uh, what geologists and biologists have been telling us about the history of you know humankind and the earth uh, maybe they're wrong about that you know maybe science is the key to understanding the history that we find recorded in the Bible um, you know so that, that begins in the 30s it definitely expands rapidly in the 1950s and 60s uh, especially with uh, certain members of what was called the American Scientific Affiliation right so in, within this community you have uh, professional scientists and researchers who are, are of the Christian faith and um, and so they it was an organization meant to cater to uh, to questions that they may have, they may have but within that organization there were several who decided you know with this uh, they tried to use their background in geology to argue that um, you know the phenomenon in the known what we find in the world today geological formations and so forth can be explained by what's written in the Bible so it, it's a very different approach and it's uh, flowered into this movement that's uh, quite you know very much taken off uh, to the point where you know upwards of 40 percent of the American population is skeptical of at least some aspect of uh, evolution, especially human origins, uh, and at least 20% of the population believes that uh, the Earth is not so old, you know, maybe less than 10,000 years at most. So, I mean, that's a, that's a big number. It's not a fringe movement, uh, and it, if you look at it, it can teach us a lot about uh, the society itself, the way people think, and the way that people uh, think we ought to discover truth or verify. Uh, yeah, so I was commenting on that this this movement, uh, it's it's unique uh, in that they, in, in their minds, the scientific method is fine. There's nothing wrong with science itself. And in their minds, if you apply that method properly, you can come to the conclusion that uh, Earth history and human origins do resemble the story that we find in the book of Genesis, in Hebrew scriptures. So that's it. I mean, it's a very. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's a it's a tough claim. That's a serious claim, because uh, you'd have to say that you know all, almost all of the world's geologists and paleontologists and anthropologists and so forth are simply wrong about our history. Um, that's it's tough. So they put them. I mean, they've made a, a very bold claim, and just looking at that alone. I mean, if they if they rely in their mind on the scientific method then we can test that claim and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, obviously we all have our worldviews and, and maybe we want one or the other to be true whether that's expressed consciously or not uh, but still like at the root of their claim is that uh, you know we can test this scientifically uh, so it's turned it into a very a growing movement um, but not because the evidence is in their favor. Uh, we could talk about specific evidences in a minute, but uh, first I would point out that the, the method by which they make this successful, first of all, it's by not engaging the scientific community. Um, they really don't. I mean, if you look at organizations like uh, Answers in Genesis or Institute for Creation Research, uh, Creation Ministries International, and, and there are a number of organizations but all of them have one thing in common. They do have uh, people there with degrees, legitimate degrees, uh, who have legitimate experience in these fields, you know, in medical fields and 
biological research and geology and so forth. Uh, and what they do is, in, rather than engaging the scientific community through the normal uh, process of, you know, publishing and going to conferences and sharing their results and, and so forth, uh, most of their publications are done in-house, so to speak. And so you go to Answers in Genesis and, and ask a question, and there's an, always going to be an article that answers, uh, I mean, gives their answer, and it's going to be written by somebody with a PhD. Uh, so it gives the illusion of authority. It's not a direct appeal to authority, um, but it effectively works out that way because most of their readers, I mean, almost all their readers, don't have this background in the same disciplines, and so they don't necessarily know how to weigh the evidence, how to understand it, how to test it. And the problem with that is that uh, the articles are written in a way that will be persuasive to a layperson, somebody without professional experience in, or formal training in these fields. It'll be, it'll, it's going to be persuasive, uh, and they're very good at that. Uh, so when you see something that sounds persuasive and confirms your own worldview, right, they're reaching out mainly to uh, conservative Christians who, you know, who in their mind, they're the ones taking the Bible seriously and everybody else is kind of being liberal with it or compromising on its authority and so forth. So, you know, it, it upholds what they believe and hold dear. Right? That makes it very effective. And the illusion of authority um, holds it. It also gives it more weight. Uh, the problem is, and this is tricky, uh, so, I mean, a typical appeal to authority, you might say, well, I, I know this about physics because, you know, my friend Matt is a physicist and, I mean, he's really smart, and he knows what he was talking about, and that's what he says, so that's, I know it's true. And, and, the, and the logical flaw in that statement is that, uh, you know, experts aren't, I mean, something isn't true because an expert says it's true. Uh, on the other hand, I, I mean, in reality, like any, any uh, scientific hypothesis or theory is robust because the evidence supports it, but the trick is you can't, I mean, how are you going to determine whether the evidence supports the claim? Uh, we need the help of experts to figure that out, right? And so any claim outside of my field of expertise, my training, I have to rely on people who devote their time and life to this to, to understand it, right? So what you have is, um, you know, a, a handful of uh, people with that formal training who are testifying that the evidence does support their claim, and the people reading what their writings uh, don't have, and they don't know how to verify that claim except by listening to the person who's explaining it and, and trying to sell the claim. Uh, the better approach is to, uh, you know, reach out to as many experts as possible to help you understand this, help, help you understand the process, and also take a look at what, you know, the scientific consensuses are. You know, science is not a democracy in that, uh, you know, truth is determined by what the majority That's not the case. And, and, it, and, you know, there have been times in the past where the scientific consensus was simply wrong and it progressed. It was falsified and we moved on, we shifted the paradigm and so forth. But at the same time, uh, it's, it's a good way to evaluate whether a scientific claim is really persuasive because if you know, if the vast majority of scientists are not persuaded by the claim, then 
either you've discovered a truth that they are too stubborn to accept, or they know something that you don't, uh, and that's usually the case. And it's, that's the option that most people won't consider. Right. Uh, so I guess my point is, I mean, these organizations can be very persuasive in the way that they communicate uh, their ideas. You know, they write as many articles as possible. So any question you have, any, if you say, well, that's, uh, how can they claim that the Earth is 6,000 years old? I know that the ice cores, the ice core records extend, uh, you know, way beyond 6,000 years. Like, this is simple, right? So you go to Answers in Genesis, and you find numerous articles written about the ice cores. And you say, oh, well, actually, gosh, these guys, they've got degrees in meteorology and, and geology and such, and, and they say that the ice core records don't suggest that the Earth is old, and they actually support the biblical history. Uh, and, in, you know, regardless of how ridiculous that claim is, regardless of whether it's true or false, uh, the fact is they have it out there, and they've written it such a way that um, it's appealing to the general audience, it's persuasive to a general audience, and um, most people aren't going to test it beyond that. Right, so there's there's a lot of confirmation bias at work, and and they they perfected the art of persuasion. Um, and I, one of my favorite quotes is, "There's a difference between proof and persuasion." Um, and you can't, you know, the average person, especially the average American, is not persuaded in the same way that research scientists are persuaded. Right. Uh, oftentimes, especially when it comes to scientific claims, uh, whether it's you know, especially when it's about medicine or something that affects the way that we ought to live, right? Uh, usually, we evaluate those claims through our value systems, right? So, if something accords with our value system, we're more likely to accept the claim. You know, it also matters what the personal beliefs of the of the person giving the claim are. You know, somebody, uh, you know, so somebody who's always grown up in the church and, and considers them a devout Christian will not be so, I mean, they're going to be very hesitant to accept anything that Richard Dawkins says because he's very vocal against, you know, not only in his scientific pro propositions, but also very vocal about his criticisms of religion in general, right? So somebody like that, they'll, they'll look at him and say, I don't share your values, I don't see you as a proper authority. Or I don't see you as a trustworthy authority. I'm I'm going to stick with the people that uh, that I trust because of those those shared values. So when it comes to communicating science, is this is a really good lesson. I think studying the the young earth creationist movement can teach everyone a lot about how to uh, you know not only how to investigate the natural world, but also how to communicate that to the public. Right? We we get caught in our world where you know you go to the conference, you you share the evidence, you get the feedback, and you publish and then you go through peer review and somebody else publishes a criticism or a confirmation of what you found and I mean, that's how we learn in science, right? By uh, by sharing our data and communicating it back and forth and we test test it with new data, test it again and again and again. Uh, that's right <laughs> because even when you think you know the answer, you keep searching, you research it. Um, so. That that's the big disconnect, I think, and it's very strong in the U.S. in particular, uh, because I think uh, uh, well, American evangelicalism, uh, in in my opinion, is very much the uh, combination of this 
individualism, you know, American individualism, and um, uh, what did I call it? The, the perspicuity of, of scripture, right? In their mind, um, the, the Bible itself is meant to be understandable by anybody, not just the high clergy. And, you know, American individualism is this, you know, in, in, through that philosophy, like, uh, I'm, I'm, I can be on my own, I can understand it, I could research it myself, I can come to an informed conclusion, and, and so forth. And it, it allows them to disconnect themselves or distance themselves from the scientific community if they want to, right? And so that, that's how this movement stays successful. It, it continues to expand uh, regardless of how the science progresses. So, um, I mean, anybody looking at it from the outside, if you're not familiar with the Young Earth movement, uh, there's a lot to it. But again, we can we can learn a lot uh, in terms of you know human psychology and and uh, how people are persuaded by by certain things. And, and this doesn't extend only to the, you know the age of the Earth or human origins or evolution and so forth. It very much applies to you know discussions about medical treatments, things like vaccines and their safety, uh, things like food, uh, agriculture, uh, engineering, etc. And certainly you know climate change, and, and it's extremely relevant even today with the pandemic. Uh, people apply the same principles when they take a counter consensus position uh, about you know health public health situations. So, I, I mean, that's, that's why I use this as a good example to, uh, you know, a, a good humbling teaching tool uh, about how to try and bridge the public and the research community. Yeah, it, it does. But then they could just reply, oh, because when we share it to other uh, science communities, we just get judged because we believe in extremely... Uh, different with diff extremely different conclusions than what the consensus is, so they th that that could be the reason why they do that. And that's an effective defense, um, because it appears that way certainly. Like if um, and you find out if if you know just take one of those papers that uh, is published on Anthropogenesis and try to submit it to a scientific journal and see what happens. Um, and and people who work for Work with Ken Ham or or just part you know their or other organizations like they do take part uh, in these uh, professional meetings I and mean, if you go to the Geological Society of America conferences uh, either regional and and uh, annual conferences I mean you can find young earth creationists there and they'll present posters make presentations uh, and but they they try to blend in with the community by not being upfront about their beliefs. Uh, you know they'll they'll present, for example, you know evidence that the uh, that, that this this sandstone layer was actually not you know not laid down in a desert, but it was laid down in water, and the implications of that is that the water would have to be really deep and and have these strong currents, right? So that that on itself seems like a you know it's a, a simple geological investigation, but you know their hidden agenda is that um, you know they're they're trying to undo the conventional understanding and make this piece of evidence uh, more believable in a uh, younger uh, geology model. Yeah, but yeah, but um, uh, object objectively, there's no problem with that because if they're 
trying to get the attention of the yeah if they're trying to get the attention of the scientific uh community and present their own arguments or scientific studies then i think that's a lot better than isolationism is being you know isolating themselves from the community yeah um it is but again like when when they do uh put them you know when they do interact with those communities uh they do so in ways that are on the surface quite innocent you know arguing about small pieces of evidence like they would never be able to bring the whole uh the whole picture together uh so so they they look at things that are kind of inconsequential to disciplines in geology that are very inconsequential inconsequential to our understanding of earth history um but from the point of view of people who you know read their articles and and follow this i mean just this the average uh church member who you know looks looks up to answers in genesis they they see this and say ah oh, yeah these these scientists are they're paving the way they're trying to make progress and the problem is they just don't have the resources and and they're always met with prejudice and it, yeah it can be true that, that they might be met with prejudice but um that doesn't mean that you know that the that the factual conflict doesn't exist so i mean in terms of the evidence itself they you know the scientific community rarely engages with that because it's never presented in a formal context and it's never presented uh with um in, in a way that's transparent you know where where we know like what what exactly they're trying to argue the big picture that they're trying to argue for uh so what happens is like they they their articles just don't the articles that they try to publish would never pass peer review and if they ever do and an example i'm thinking of uh oh, i can't remember what year it was probably might have been the 80s or 90s but um steve austin uh published an article in in a geology journal uh talking about a historical earthquake in the Dead Sea region right and in fact within that article uh he he identified and dated this big earthquake as and he did so by looking at how it disrupted sediments in the Dead Sea and he linked it to uh the book of Amos which describes an earthquake in a certain king's day right so we tied it to the local history of the people right and, and and so that by itself is it's a peer reviewed article in a real geology journal written by somebody with formal training in geology and there's nothing wrong with the article right but i mean the the age of an earthquake that may or may not have happened you know some 3000 years ago is uh, it's it's again inconsequential to the big picture for example about the age of everything uh so it doesn't have much effect but it's you know on the it doesn't have any effect on the scientific community it's like okay that's great now we we identified an earthquake that happened a long time ago but it doesn't change the overall view of you know geological hypotheses and and theories and it does the only thing it does is bolster confidence from the young earth community in the scientists who are purporting to lead it right but when we look at the the evidences that they present for example if you go again if you go to uh answers in genesis and and say well what about the ice cores uh i mean i you know i spent a lot of time trying to interact with these articles because they're all, always always betray 
the facts. They always betray the observations, and and often they're very badly reasoned, uh, and or or they do so by ignoring um, evidences conveniently. So in the case of like the ice cores, we're probably familiar with how this works. So we find uh, massive continental ice sheets both in Greenland, Antarctica, and a few other places. Uh, and these ice sheets are characteristic in that you, you get seasonal banding in a lot of them. You can identify these visually, you can identify it through chemical variations and so forth, but uh, what happens is the ice uh, that gets laid down or the snowfall during the winter uh, looks different from the snowfall that accumulates during the summer, which also melts to some extent. So you get this banding, and it's a good way to look at the ice core record, and, and we've got this seasonal variation, so we can count the number of layers back through time, right? And in ice cores in Greenland and Antarctica, uh, I mean, you can count these back to at least 10,000 years, in some cases 20,000 years or so. Beyond that, the ice layers are they're, they're so compressed that they're not, uh, you, you can't distinguish them anymore. But that's, uh, that's only the surface of the ice. It's a relatively, you know, small portion there. Uh, so they'll look at this and they'll try to argue that, well, actually it's possible for multiple layers to be laid down in a single year, and um, that that's, that's how we can reconcile this with our short timeline. We have to come up with a way that the ice accumulated very quickly, and they'll, they'll argue that actually uh, this is in favor of the, of the biblical timeline because we know that uh, you know Noah's flood was a big catastrophe and must have involved a lot of you know, breaking up of, uh, or I'm sorry, a lot of tectonic movements and volcanic outflow and all these other things that, that would have left the oceans warm and chemically distinct and, and stuff like this. But at the same time, the atmosphere would have been different, and so we'd have a cold atmosphere and warm oceans that contributed to massive winter storms, and that could explain how we have rapidly accumulating ice sheets and excess banding and so forth. So, so they'll argue that these thousands of layers of ice are not seasonal bands, and therefore they can reconcile them with the young Earth. Um, but they don't take the next step, right? And the next step would be to say, well, okay, if that's the case, then we can, then it would follow that, uh, you know, uh, anomalies identified, say, at layer 8,200, and there is a very, very well-known anomaly in the Greenland ice cores at 8,200 years ago, um, or 8,200 layers down. Uh, if that anomaly, you know, if, if these ice layers are not, um, if the banding is not annual, then it didn't really happen 8,200 years ago, right? But in fact, we, we can look at these um, events recorded in the ice core record, and we can test them by looking elsewhere. For example, in, you know, very old lakes or in tree green records or, uh, if, if for me, I look at caves, cave systems, because they also record the chemistry of rainfall and snowfall that uh, accumulated and melted and infiltrated through the through the ground into the cave, right? Uh, so there are lots of methods that we can use to reconstruct uh, geological history. But in this case, what we find is um, that there is a, a, a very significant climate event, uh, especially expressed well in Europe, um, also expressed in Southeast Asia and the Mediterranean and, and other and parts of North America. But it, it, you know, it agrees. The timing agrees. It, it happens about 8,200 years ago. But the thing is, we know the age of these lake sediments by using radiocarbon dating. And if you, you know, go to Answers in Genesis and ask them about radiocarbon dating, they'll give all kinds of examples why they think that's unreliable. 
you know, they say, well, if if that dating method is unreliable and you know, counting layers of ice is unreliable, then why are they given the same answer for the age of this abrupt event? Right? And and I mean these these are independently verifiable independently verifiable evidence that point to the same conclusion. And those are those are just two methods. I mean again if you look at cave system, that's an entirely different technique of dating the uh, the calcite layers in cave formations. And and that involves looking at the decay of thorium into uranium, or the sorry, of uranium into thorium. Uh, and, and using that ratio we can identify um, or sorry, date the layers of calcite. And we'll find I mean dozens of examples from cave records uh, of this climate anomaly that happened about eight thousand two hundred years ago. I found it in my in my own uh, research as well. So you know, so now we, we we can pinpoint. This is just one of hundreds of climate events where you can identify it in ice cores and lake records and ocean sediments and uh, cave records and a number of other archives. And the dating methods all give us the same answer with regard to the age of that anomaly, right? And and so when you, you know this this big article they base it answers in Genesis it's persuasive again to those who are unfamiliar with the discipline unfamiliar with the uh, totality of data that are out there uh, because you know somebody reading that would never think to follow it up in this manner uh, so by keeping these issues separate they can you know sort of cherry pick uh, what what they think what evidence they think supports their claim Right, but when they discuss a different claim, then they cherry pick the evidence that they think supports that one, and they don't connect those um, questions very well. So that's been the real frustrating part, uh, and, and this happens again not just with discussing discussing the uh, history of the Earth or geology or the history of the human species. Like it's, um, I mean, it's it's almost every you know counter consensus position on a scientific question, they, they kind of take this same approach, right? They'll isolate a, a small subset of, of data and, and use that to support their claim. And, they, and it becomes very persuasive to a lot of people. Um, before those people, I mean, before those people would follow it up and try to verify uh, whether this is true, try to think, well, if that's true, then, then X, so let's go test X as well. Uh, they'll just stop there and they say, oh, that makes sense. I'm going to share this with everyone I know. Uh, and so a good saying is that, um, I'm reminded of the saying that uh, a lie can travel half the world before the truth can tie its shoes. And that's how this works. You know, it, it just, it propagates because it takes so much more effort to dispute or, or falsify a claim than it does to share it and just accept it. So yeah, um, I wanted to ask you if, if you were to give a the shortest and but the biggest arguments against young earth creationists what would that argument be or those arguments be uh, that's going to be the biggest challenge to summarize it um, because the, I mean the best argument against it is the, the whole preponderance of evidence and, and that's a lot of data to sort through uh, so I try to go with things that are more tangible you know for example uh, what would the implications be? I try, you know, I try to focus on the complexity, for example, of geological structures, 
the if you know as we dig into the ground, it doesn't all look like the Grand Canyon where you have these nice flat layers accumulated. It looks like they're just accumulated over time. Um, the somewhat deceptive uh, approach from young earth creationists is to point to examples like the Grand Canyon and say, look, this is what geology or geological history looks like, and they interpret these layers as taking a long time to lay down with a little bit of water over a long time. So we interpret it as something that happened very abruptly with a lot of water and a lot of energy. And so, you know, we've got one line of evidence, I mean, the same evidence supporting one view and supporting the other view simultaneously. And we'll just, how would they draw people in? They present it as some just a competing hypotheses, and, and in science, we, we then we try to come up with new you know, new ways to test between those hypotheses. But they presented a bit misleading in this sense. Um, you know, the main way is by isolating bits of evidence, as I mentioned. So the first is that uh, you know the geological data don't look like the Grand Canyon. There aren't you know nice layers that accumulated over time. It's actually very complicated. Uh, have layers that formed, and then they had to lithify, you know, turn into rock. Then they had to deform. We know they deformed because we can find those structures uh, both at the, the the crystalline level by looking under the microscope to see how those minerals have deformed. Uh, you can look at fractures in the rocks and and other evidences that they actually solidified first and then deformed. And then we could look at other layers of rock lying on top of those that contain pieces of those under you know, those lower layers of rock. All right, so when you think about the timeline here, not only does the sediment have to be laid down, it has to lithify, it has to deform, it has to uplift, and then it has to erode off into other basins that formed, right? And when those basins formed, new sediments accumulated, uh, taking pieces of the older rock and, and incorporating them in. Uh, and then that happened again and again and again and again. I mean, many, many times through history. Uh, so the timeline doesn't allow for, I mean, it doesn't matter how much water you have, how much energy you have, even if we acknowledge uh, the possibility of a miraculous event where, where, you know, forget about where this water would come from naturally, like even if we just allow that it could appear that God made it uh, happen, like it doesn't matter. There's, there's not enough water, not enough energy, that's not the problem. It's the entire uh, timeline that doesn't work here. There are too many events that have to happen. Uh, and we can see that looking at basic stratigraphy. Uh, we can see that looking at uh, tiny ex isolated examples such as um, uh, one of my favorites is uh, stomach stones and dinosaurs. I mean, they're dinosaurs just like uh, some animals today that actually swallowed stones that would help them digest food in their stomachs. And there are examples of dinosaurs with these stones in their stomach cavity, in that, you know, in their body cavity. Uh, but if you look at those stones, they contain fossils of uh, creatures from, like marine creatures, from the Paleozoic, right? So how did, you know, marine creatures buried in Paleozoic sediments get to lithify, fossilize, get exposed to the surface and erode into nice little pebbles that were swallowed by a dinosaur, and that dinosaur then got, you know, fossilized, and that layer got lithified, eroded, etc.? Like it, just, it just doesn't make sense, and you don't have to look at too much data to see uh, that the, the um, hypothesis that a global flood could explain geological phenomena just doesn't work. Like it, it doesn't work whatsoever. Uh, you know, there's 
too complex a timeline and too many events happening, right? So the I mean the only way to explain it honestly is by invoking a completely miraculous history of of uh, nat I mean the history of natural phenomenon. You know the rocks were created to look this way, to created with this history already in place, uh, and that raises its own theological questions. But I mean the like I said, the modern uh, Young Earth Creationist movement, they claim to be scientific and, and applying that same or similar method to data and, and doing so in a way that is not prejudicial against um, you know, the Christian faith or, or biblical teaching. So in their mind, they've, they've just, they're just being honest with all the possibilities, which would include the involvement of, of the biblical God. So, you know, but it, it's really not the case. I mean, the evidence doesn't support it whatsoever. Um, yeah, and that, I mean that's that's the type of part, the toughest part. You have to get people to engage uh, those data, and, and, but it doesn't take much to see like that. There's so much going on. Uh, I mean, people have pointed out a, a range of these. I've given a couple a couple examples that I think. Um, but I'm I, again for me, I would approach it from uh, the most recent history and and work backward. You know, I mean, we can point to the ancient stuff that's hundreds of millions of years old uh, and argue whether that's, <laughs> you know, accurately dated. But if you just look at the surface of the Earth and work backward, then I mean, you get to the same conclusion. Uh, I mean, right now, we've, again, we've got continental ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica, but we have uh, ample evidence, which, which Answers in Genesis doesn't reject, ample evidence of widespread glaciation that covered most all of Canada and most of Feniscandia, Feniscandia and Central Europe and parts of Russia uh, at the last glacial period. So we have evidence that these ice sheets grew all the way down to uh, relatively low latitudes before they receded. And we've got evidence of the sediments that were left behind as those glaciers melted and, and formed rivers and lakes at their margins. Um, but beneath those layers, uh, we have layers of sediment that uh, resemble environments that look very much like the modern situation, right? So before the ice sheets were there, there was a stable environment where, um, where we had a relatively warm climate. And beneath those sediments, there's evidence of advancing ice sheets. And beneath those sediments, you know, and so forth and so on. So it's, I mean, it's hard enough, it's impossible, it's actually physically impossible to explain the existence of these big ice sheets, which were like a mile or two thick, you know, several kilometers thick in their center and, and spanned most of the continent. Uh, you can't explain the accumulation of that much ice within a few thousand years and they only have a few hundred years to allow for it in their in their timeline. Uh, but even if it were physically possible, like there wasn't just one advance of an ice sheet. I mean these had to form and melt and form again and melts like several dozen times. So it's uh, it's it's really frustrating you know when I mean, the, preponderance, the preponderance of evidence is uh, very compelling and the only way to place doubt on it is to completely isolate uh, subsets of data uh, to force them to you know look plausible to make this make the scenario look plausible right uh, and and it's quite a deceptive practice in my mind that's what makes it really frustrating it's deceptive but it's extremely persuasive Okay, okay. So that was young creationists debunked, <laughs> but 
But um, yo, bro, like you know that w- what the best thing about this is is that you're you're a Christian, and this is the but what uh, young creationists make it is that oh the people that believe in evolution, they're atheists. They're trying to disprove God. They're trying to disprove the Bible. But that's not really the narrative here. It's simply using the scientific method. You know. It's not a war against God. Right. It, it's a very effective strategy. I mean, you make this us versus them strategy. And the only reason they don't believe the way we do is that they're, they're biased against uh, our, our foundation, you know, our moral and philosophical foundation. And, you know, it's, it's very easy to set up that sort of a portrait, but it's, it's just it doesn't fit reality. Uh, I mean, because you, you know, when it comes to something like geological history, like this is acknowledged, uh, the the evidence is acknowledged, the conclusions of that from that evidence are acknowledged by people across cultures, across faiths. You know, if it were the case that only atheists believed that the Earth was four and a half billion years old, then they they might have a reasonable case, but that's that's not true, <laughs> not true at all. I mean, the majority of, uh, excuse me, the majority of uh, theistic scientists are they accept this too right uh, and and of course this has implications for I don't know who we what we think is special unique about humans uh, has implications for foundations morality and then how we decide to live our lives that's, that's fine uh, but and we can all deal with those you know those uh, the implications we can all deal with the apparent discrepancies or you know whatever challenges this presents with our faith or lack of faith uh, but that's separate from the question, like the, from the scientific question. I mean, first settle the scientific question uh, using that common methodology, and and yeah, I, you know, I, again, I think you'll find that they're that it's not bias driven. You know, there there are several examples uh, where there is there is evidence of bias, and of course they'll always point those out. Um, but generally speaking, that's that's not how it works. Uh, I mean, if, if you ever see that claim, you know, that uh, the that, that scientists or the community, they're, they're just um, prejudiced against us. You know, they want to disprove our faith, not our science. Uh, just, yeah, just look around. Look at the demographics of who's actually advocating any scientific position. Uh, that's, that's helpful also in, in questions like you know the, the question of global warming, another area where the public opinion is quite different from research community, right? Uh, and the way they present it is often often politically driven, you know, as though the agenda of scientists is to push for some political agenda. And then, and okay, you can make that claim, but uh, the fact is is that the, the scientists researching global warming and researching uh, why it's happening and, and what, what's going to happen in the future. I mean, these are scientists. They are people who are not at all conservatives, who are collectivists in communist societies, and everything in between. And they all come to the same conclusion. I mean, it includes atheists and Christians and, and uh, Hindus and Muslims and everybody else. Like, uh, again, if, if you had only one demographic, one political group, one faith group, uh, supporting a scientific claim and everybody else is against that uh, I mean that's that's what you find here like the only demographic that's 
that would even suggest the evidence is in favor of, of a young Earth or against evolution. The only demographic that's really favoring that are um, uh, subsets of Christianity and a few other faiths. I, w I won't limit it just to Christianity, but there are a few faiths that actually share a common tradition, though, in, in the Hebrew scriptural tradition. So it's, it, yeah, that, I mean, that's that by itself turns the question and the claim against them of prejudicial uh, rejection of evidence, because, you know, the people who accept the scientific consensus come from all backgrounds. The people who reject it generally come from one background. Does that make sense? So I, I mean, there, yeah, there is a lot to talk about. Uh, I've, I've tried to, you know, I've had these discussions at length. I've tried to write out in detail uh, what's wrong with individual arguments, and it, it can be instructive. I like doing that because I think looking at these counter consensus positions uh, can, and I think when it comes to teaching geology, we're teaching, say, climate science. Like we we should teach in a way that anticipates these objections, right? Because otherwise it gives the appearance and people uh, give the, they, they try to make the appearance that, that uh, we are just ignoring uh, the evidence that they present. We're trying to filter them out somehow and, and that there's some bias here. Uh, but if we anticipate those claims and, and then we, you know, you know it, it, can, it can be very instructive how to teach uh, geology, how to teach climatology, or teach evolution, uh, do so by looking at the counter-movements, what evidence they find persuasive, anticipate that evidence and those arguments in your teaching, and then the general public will have already encountered the, the criticisms of their claims, right? Even if you don't mention them explicitly. I mean, I, so to give you an example, when I'm teaching about paleoclimatology, the most common objection to, uh, to you know, if, if we uh, mention that modern climate is changing, that the, the climate system is warming and that humans are responsible, uh, the knee-jerk reaction for most is to say, well, yeah, but that's, that's always been the case. It's always been changing, right? Uh, so when I teach paleoclimatology, I do so in a way that anticipates that objection and get people to confront that claim critically so that they've you know they've already encountered it and then they can you know they find the evidence themselves and they come to that conclusion themselves that it's a you know it's a nonsense uh, reaction it doesn't make any sense yeah the, the climate has always been changing sure that's a truism but that's exactly how we know that modern climate change is not entirely due to natural forcings right that there there is the uh, uh, that the human, pack, human impact is measurable and valid and actually explains most of the variance in climate uh, trends over the last couple hundred years, right? Um, so I think, I mean, that's, for me, that's one way of trying to address the existence of this movement and, and try to address uh, and try to bridge the discourse in a way. Uh, otherwise, it, it's perceived as very hostile. Uh, you know, it's it's very easy to, you know, take a. It's very easy to look at a movement like this, look at their individual claims, and you know, present them as ridiculous because there's there are objectively many flaws with the arguments that they use. There are many. Often, it's very deceptive. 
Uh, and it's, it's easy to look at that and say, look how ridiculous this is. They're liars. They're con artists. They're this and that. And uh, it, it, whether or not that's true, it's not helpful in the discourse, right? It, it certainly doesn't help persuade anybody either way. Uh, so, uh, I mean, in my opinion, the best way to approach this, um, I mean, in, in, from the beginning in public education or any education, uh, is to look at those, you know, again, let, let lead students into those arguments so that they can work them out themselves without being set in the context of this, you know, so-called or, or, or apparently philosophical uh, conflict. It's, you know, it doesn't have to be a com presented as a conflict of faith versus faith or faith versus non-faith. Uh, it's, you know, just get them to think critically about things like, well, the earth, you know, the, the climate has always changed. So, what does that mean for studying modern climate? <laughs> you know, how do we go from one to the other? Uh, I, I don't know. That it's, I know that's a bit, um, bit of a ramble, but it definitely reflects my frustration over the years in trying to deal with. Um, claims from all over the place. You know, it's, it's not just my own expertise. This in all over science, <laughs> um, and, and I think many people struggle to understand why this is persuasive and what to do about it. And they've got it set in their mind that well, that it's they're just blinded by religion, they're blinded by politics or whatever it may be, and they're never going to change their mind. And it's just not true. People do change their mind all the time, but. Like I said earlier, there's a difference between proof and persuasion, and the average individual is not persuaded in the same way as the average scientist is or professional scientist. So, you know, again, you have to step back and think what values, what uh, beliefs are driving their view of evidence and their, their idea of how we test anything, and uh, find any bridge to get over. And you got, you got to make some connection before you can proceed and talk about the raw data. Yeah, and uh, I, bro, it's been great talking to you, and we're almost closing in on an hour. And to wrap this up, I want to ask you one last question. Being someone with your credentials, you know, you've studied this, and that uh, you're totally not someone, some average guy. Uh, you're you're someone who is able to have or analyze things very scientifically. Um, what advice would you give to those who actually believe the young Earth science? and what direction should they take in order to free themselves from any dogmatic? Uh... Uh, it's a good question. Um, for me, I would say, uh, first of all, it's a reassurance that uh, scientists are not out to get you. They're not out to come for your faith or, or disprove that or something. I mean, sure, there are some who are very antagonistic toward any faith, and um, that's fine. Just, just leave those people aside. Uh, reach out and talk to uh, various experts and, and talk to experts from across these spectrums and, and you know, have, have a discussion and let them tell you like, what, what they find convincing and why. Uh, and that, that's the first step. Uh, we don't have to paint everybody as being for you or against you. Uh, the other thing is I mean, yeah, the other, the other thing is uh, take a critical look at uh, the methods by which this worldview is being presented. And it's, you know, it's being touted by people like Ken Ham, but not specifically him. It's all the people that he hires, you know, that do have 
formal training and education, and that's fine. Like, we're nobody's saying that that those people are just unintelligent or don't understand the science. I think a lot. I mean, I've met some of them, and, and they do clearly understand their discipline. Uh, but when you <laughs> when you find yourself uh, with a claim that's rejected by the vast majority of of scientists, you have to ask your question, did you just stumble upon a truth that all of them are too stupid or stubborn to discover? Or is it the case that they know something that you don't? And I'll guarantee you, every time it is the case that they know something that you don't. And if you, you know, just step out of your comfort zone enough to have a discussion with them, uh, that's the best way to learn what it is you might be missing, right? Uh, it's a way to move forward and, and uh, you know, retreating back. So that's the end of it. Thanks for tuning in, guys. This is your host, Elmo Ador Jr. And thank you for listening in. And please subscribe. Please follow us on Facebook. Please, please follow this. Please. Thanks. Thank you.